Welcome to the Dose of Caesar, the podcast that runs experiments, explores new ways of thinking, and talks to the most interesting people that I've met in my life. Today, I am honored to have Dr. Devin Walker, who is the Director of Global Leadership and Social Impact at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, Dr. Walker is also the CEO and founder of the World Walker Foundation, which provides educational and financial resources to help students of the African diaspora. Is it diaspora? Is that how you say it? Diaspora, diaspora, depends on the context, but diaspora works. Diaspora, participate in service learning trips within the African diaspora. Dr. Walker is a world citizen who has taught English in Korea for two years, lived in five countries and traveled to 30 countries. Just a little concept, context on who Dr. Walker is to me. When I arrived to the University of Texas at Austin, I met Dr. Moore and, and I was like a lot of people in his class wanted to go to South Africa with him. So um, I didn't know the application process, but Devin, Dr. Devin Walker was the TA. So I approached Devin and I was like very nervous. And I told him, Devin, I, I just, uh, I really want to go, man. But, but I, I don't know any professors, like all freshmen don't know any professors. Cause one of the, one of the things you needed for the application was two letters of recommendation. I don't know any professors. And I was expecting as a new college student, past high school student for Devin to give me the answer, just like all high school teachers had. And Devin looked at me and he, <laughs> I remember it so clearly because I was kind of like, oh shit. <laughs> he was like, get to work, man, get to work. I know you can do this. <laughs> like he gave me no answers. He just told me, yeah, you don't know any teachers. You got to go make it happen. And, um, you know, it was, it was kind of like, oh yeah, you're in college. You're on, you're, you got to start doing shit on your own. And, um, that for me was the beginning of my journey of getting out of my comfort zone very early on, um, UT. And, and I, like I told you in my email, Dr. Walker, Devin, I'm going to call you Devin now is, um, I'm cool. really grateful for that. Cause that really, that helped, that helped a lot. And so welcome to the show. I'm honored to have you. Hey, I'm ooh like that hydraulics. I'm I'm excited to be here, man. Um, it's so funny you say that because you know obviously we did that event earlier this week, yeah. and just listening to you since you reached out to me, and then really when I was listening to you talk at the uh, outreach event for the Rio Grande Valley on mm -hmm. Monday, I'm like, man, this dude is so confident and like strong in his and poised in the way that you talk and communicate. So it's funny right now that you said when you came up to me however many years ago, you were all nervous. Cause that's kind of the, you know, that's the season that I remember, you know? <laughs> but it's like a pleasant surprise to see you talk now and just to, to see you hold space, man. I was like, all right, look at him. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, it's, um, it, it, it's been a process, you know, learning this throughout uh, travel has really helped a lot because, you know, as you know, you go to a new country and you leave everyone you know. And you have to make new friends. And uh, really what happens is that you realize everyone has similar fears that are unfounded fears. You know, you don't, there's no reason to be afraid of other people. Everyone wants to meet each other. And really what people want is to understand who you are. And so it, 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 it's, uh, it doesn't benefit anyone to be shy. That's kind of what I've discovered. Yeah. I mean, I, I'll say for myself, I wouldn't say speak for everybody because, you know, people have different things that they navigate in this world. Mm -hmm. But for me, you know, the more, you know, it's funny in the ninth grade, I got voted most shyest boy. What? 
And I was so embarrassed. And I was like, and I remember the way they did the rankings. It was kind of like you people write in whoever's name that they think. And then they take like the top names, however many, like say somebody wrote your name like three times. They take the top names, then they put them into the second round and then you vote based on like, all right, these four names. So in a sense, I don't think I was like the shyest boy, but I think since my name was on there, some people recognize like, oh, I'll vote for Devin. But it was embarrassing mm-hmm. to be honest, right? And I and I was shy my my ninth grade year. And I think it speaks a lot to just the ways in which we could develop over time, right? And by my senior year, I was voted most likely to host Saturday Night Live. What? Yeah, wow, what a right? transformation. And um, you know, and now like I'm up in front of standing in front of people, teaching, talking. Um, but it's just crazy, you know, the, the things that, yeah, I was always afraid of like, you know, being a public figure. I was afraid of talking to women. I was afraid of a lot of things when I was like in the ninth grade, I was like, I guess the fear of rejection or the fear of being made fun of. Yeah. Um, What did you you do? What activities did you start to do to start to get over that fear? For me in high school, there was a, it was like a confluence of things that really influenced me. Um, One, I got a job. I worked at a bank, which I was working with all adults and I was 16. So that did a lot for my confidence. I was also, you know, I balanced my books really well when I was at the bank. I was good at math. So I was like Mm -hmm. always balancing. And I was like, my percentage of balancing my books at the end of the night was the highest in the bank. And I was the youngest in the bank. So that felt really good. Um, and also I made the basketball team. So in, in my sophomore year, I tried out for the basketball team, J junior varsity. And, you know, I kept going with my two friends and they ended up selecting like 22 players to be on junior varsity. And I was the last one on the list or whatever, right. Out of 22 players. So like, I remember the first week I didn't even get to suit up in an outfit. Like I'm literally sitting two two rows behind the basketball team in like you know my best attempt to be swaggy right with like a you know a tie and stuff like that <laughs> there wasn't enough uniform for us so i only got to play a week later when our coach entered us into two separate tournaments at the same time because we had so many players and then i got to play and one week after that he moved me up to varsity and then one oh. game into varsity I became the starting point guard on varsity. So I was like, man, how do you go from being the last pick on junior varsity, the 22nd player, right? To the starting point guard on varsity. And, you know, one time I was talking to my coach and he was like, yeah, man, you know, the only reason why I put you on JV is because you showed up to everything. It was like every fundraiser, every practice. He was like, and you kept showing up with your two guys and they both made the team. He's like, we already had 21 players. So I said, why, why the hell not? Why as well add one more player? He's like, but I really didn't think you had that much to offer. Um, wow. And lo and behold, yeah, two weeks later, I was a starting point guard on varsity. So that did a lot for my confidence for sure. Um, probably inflated my ego a little bit as well. Um, wow. But I think those two things. And then also, I think my sophomore or junior year, I got caught cheating in a class. <gasps> forgot that I was supposed to read like a speech. So like the morning of, right? Like I like printed up, you know, you're like, like 15, 16, you think you're like so much smarter than everybody else. So I like go online, I like print, you know, some like, you know, biography of some person or something. Yeah. 
And I, <laughs> I'm in class and then I realize I'm like, oh man, like you could tell this is like printed straight from the internet or whatever, right? And I'm like standing in front of the class. So I'm like, all right, well, you know, they're gonna be able to look through the paper and tell that this is just printed straight off the internet. Yeah. So I get like, you know, other white paper or something. And every time I'm done with the page, I put it in the back, but I keep the other pages further in the back. So I'm like, just looking ridiculous, like flipping the page and throwing the other ones in the back so that she can't read through it. I do my speech and it's kind of quiet. I'm like, oh, this feels awkward. She's like, okay, thank you, Devin. Um, can you see me after class, please? I was like, yeah, sure. So that week I got caught cheating in that class. I also got cheating, caught cheating in my biology class. Um, and that was a huge wake up call for me, man. It was like, you know, school had always been pretty easy to me. So I never really tried. Mm -hmm. Um, and in both of those situations, one, I had just forgotten the other one I was taking, I had been absent for a few days in this biology class. So I was taking a remake of a test and he put me in a, another biology class to take it. They were studying for the same test. So I'm literally sitting next to a dude who's studying the page in the book that I'm like taking the test. So I'm just, of course, right? That It wasn't <laughs> like I had like planned to cheat. I just like, of course, I'm like, <laughs> I ended up getting spot. So both of those two things in the same weeks really kind of forced me, especially as like a young black man in Los Angeles at 15, 16 years old. Mm. Like, yo man, who do you want to be? You know, who are you going to be? And if you keep making decisions like that, this society has a pathway for you, right? A very organic pathway towards jail, towards, wow. you know, not very many opportunities. So that kind of woke me up, mm. forced me to get in the books a little bit better. And then I think with also having the job at the bank and then also being the captain of the basketball team, at least by my junior year, I was the captain of the basketball team. Um, those things really kind of started to focus me in on just being a better person, building myself, being more confident in myself. And, um, I guess ultimately that's how I landed, um, you know, in college and and most likely to host Saturday Night Live. <laughs> wow, I I, I want to get there, but before we get there, I wanted to ask: Was there anything specific that your teachers, those two teachers who caught you uh, cheating, is there anything specific that they said that made you realize that this is not who you wanted to be, or is this just a natural conclusion you came to? I think it was somewhat of a natural conclusion, right? I mean, I also got in a lot of trouble because I got a, a D in the biology class and a C in the speech class. And I didn't get Ds or Cs, right? I got As and Bs. So I got in a lot of trouble. You know, I got put on <laughs> pretty bad punishment, couldn't do anything. Um, my biology teacher, my, Mr. Bautista, I think he just was kind of giving me that look like, you know, like, you know, you don't know, clearly you don't know the answers that you just wrote down. Cause I just asked you like, you know, that's on you to deal with my, I can't remember my, my uh, speech teacher's name, but she was mad cool. Um, she kind of gave me a little look and a little talking to in that, in that meeting after like, look, you're better than this. Like I loved your first speech. She was like, it was great. And I could tell it came from you. I wrote on like um, decriminalizing prostitution. Oh, wow. That's what I wrote about. And I was into it. And I really enjoyed writing that speech. And, you know, I, I, I believed in what I was saying. And um, I just forgot about this one. You know, I just, you know, you're 15, 16. You're just. Yeah. You know, it, was, it was a last minute thing. Yeah. And I think that's kind of where she was pushing me. She was like, look, when you do the work, you do a great job. 
But if you want to be lackadaisical and not prioritize your work, this is what you're going to get out of life. So you got to figure out which path you want to take. Mm. Uh, was college always uh, in the picture for you or how did you end up in uh, undergrad? Yeah, so um, my parents didn't finish college. My mother went to USC. Um, she had some very unfortunate family events happen um, and she lost her mother while she was like a junior. So she ended up dropping out. My father went to like a, a jun- JUCO, like a junior college, community college. Hmm. He didn't finish. Um, so there was like an expectation of going to college growing up. Like mm-hmm. academics was something that we did focus on in our household. Um, but it was also like just an expectation that you did well in school. It wasn't like they were harassing us on us. It was just like, we'll see when your grades come out. However, my older brother, um, he was always really smart. And we also went to really good schools. We were tracked into like magnet programs. So obviously our peers, everybody's kind of thinking of college. Um, so my brother went to USC and I think once he decided he's like three years older than me, once he decided he was going to go to USC, I felt like I had to step it up as well before I was like, Oh, I'm gonna go to the army or something like that. Mm. I think I was in like, again, that 14, 15 year old male machismo. Like I was like all for like pro president Bush, like bombing people, just I was the dumbest shit. Um, and once he went to college, I was kind of like, man, I got to get my stuff together. So my junior year, I was going to the college center constantly trying to like just figure out resources, trying to figure out what, what it was, you know, figure out the system, you know, while my mom went, she didn't finish and she could help us some, but you know, I needed more guidance. So I was always in there. Um, and eventually I saw they had this um, scholarship called the Posse Foundation. She was offering it to somebody else. I just saw a hundred thousand oh, dollars. So I'm wow. like walking out of the office, <laughs> explaining it to another student. She's like, hey, I only get to nominate 10 students from our school. I think you'd be really great, yada, yada, yada. And I'm kind of like looking, watching, and like, man, like, why did she nominate me, you know? Yeah. So she actually like calls me back in the next day. She's like, hey, I seen you looking over when I was presenting this. Would you be interested? You know, there was two opportunities to the University of Wisconsin and to Grinnell in Iowa, which is a small private liberal arts college. Um, so I was like, hell yeah, I'm interested in $100,000, full tuition, of course. Went to the interview. It was a huge interview, it was super awkward. They had us doing like all this like social-emotional learning, group work. Wow. It's kind of like weird and awkward for me, who I was as a, like a, a black dude at 17. It was very much out of my comfort zone and very much defied at that point what I understood to be like black masculinity. Um, so it was uncomfortable. I remember I walked out at the end of the meeting. I didn't take none of the materials, nothing, just like, Psh, this is weird. But I got called back for a second round interview. And, um, I could tell in that second round interview, they really liked me. And they were telling me, they're like, look, you have a lot of the qualities that we're looking for. And then eventually I got selected. So it's called the posse. You go in a posse. It was 10 of us. We got sent off to college to Wisconsin together, 10 kids from LA, um, various, um, very diverse high schools, socioeconomic status, race, gender, sexuality, everything. And we got to learn from each other for a year before we went off to college. So my senior year from January into August, we were in training every week, learning about each other, learning about leadership, learning about college excellence, um, and a lot of like sociocultural issues. And um, it was great. And so then when I went to college, I had a built-in kind of support system. And obviously I went to Wisconsin, which is very white and very 
overwhelming at times. It was 92% white. Mm. The university when I was there, 1.8% black. And you know, my mom is white, but mm. that's very different coming home to a white person every day and then going to live in a city or a country or I mean a state where it's everybody's white. Snow is white. You know, the ground is white. The sky is white. The people are white. It was just white, white everywhere. Um, and I, you know, I think some point during my freshman year, I realized if I can make it here, like I can travel the world. Like I can go global. Like this is studying abroad. You know, coming from LA to Wisconsin, like that was studying abroad for me. Wow. And I had always wanted to go to Africa. Um, and so then I set that kind of in motion as a goal of my, at the, towards the end of my freshman year that, hey, you know what? You should study abroad in Africa as an undergrad. Um, and this was all, of, this was all on your own? This was like, a, was there any, anything you saw, any professors or how did you find out that study abroad was a thing? How, or well, I was, um, so my freshman year, I was dating someone who was a sophomore. Mm. And she was also in Posse, but from a different city. Um, she was from Chicago. So I was the first year that Posse had came to from Los Angeles to Wisconsin. So we were the oldest kids from L.A. The year before, they had got some kids from Chicago. So at this point, there's like the sophomores, us, and then a new class of freshmen from uh, Chicago. And, um, you know, her, she was applying so that during her junior year, she was going to go to Thailand. So my freshman year, she's in the process of applying. So it, it did bring oh, some like wow. awareness to me. Um, but again, I think I also came with a little bit of an interest to travel to Africa. I'd always wanted to travel to Africa since I was a boy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, just the narratives about Africa, the narratives about black people and me being mixed and learning so much about my white history in Europe and all this and never really have access to that, you know, on my black side. And, and when things did come out about Africa, they're often told through like a white worldview, a white lens. And it just didn't seem right. And I'm like, there's gotta be more to the story than that. So I'd always wanted to go. So once I got to college and then people around me are doing it like her, I'm like, oh, okay, I could, I could actually do this. Wow. And after that, what, uh, what was, uh, the first country you went to and, and how to, what was it like? How did you apply? how did you get in or how did you go? Yeah. So, um, I applied. So at the end of my sophomore year, I applied to do a summer program in Canada to learn French. So in Quebec, they speak French. It's the only Francophone, mm -hmm. you know, region in, you know, like the, you know, this part of the Western hemisphere or at least North America. So I had been taking French for a year because I really wanted to go to West Africa, like Senegal and Cameroon, they speak French. Mm -hmm. So I've been taking French for a year during my sophomore year. And then I went out there and I loved it. Canada was so interesting. I mean, it was so similar, obviously, it was yeah. so different, you know, and that just really broadened my horizons. And the main things were these um, maps. Like when I, I remember seeing a map and the map was like Canada, in the United States, but the roads went through, you know, and you could tell how close and connected the land was. And it was really just this border that was dividing us. Mm -hmm. But that was so different from maps I was used to seeing in the States growing up because you have the United States with roads and everything, states, da 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 da, da. 
But then like Canada, oftentimes it's just a big green space. Yeah. You know, it doesn't even, sometimes it doesn't even have like the provinces listed, right? Or any of that (laughs) stuff. So it's like, man, they see us as part of like their reality, but we as Americans don't see them as part of our reality. That was kind of like the main thing I walked away with. Like, I didn't know nothing about Canada's history, government, politics, nothing. And they knew so much about us. So it made me start to just realize like, okay, what does it actually mean to be American and or United States? Um, and part of that means like the way we're taught is to like really hold on to this idea that America is exceptional mm. and better than the rest of the world and that everyone else wants to come here and all we need to do is focus on ourselves and and learn our own history because none of the other world matters, right? It's like mm-hmm. everybody wants to come here and that's kind of what we're taught. Uh, so that was a big revel- revelation I kind of had out there. And, you know, let me let me put you on the spot real quick. Mm. This is my question I always ask people when I'm talking about Canada. What is the capital of Canada? <laughs> <laughs> Tough one. What you got? Um, I think I know like two cities in Canada. Toronto? Not Toronto. <laughs> and then I know that. Quebec is a, a, a province or something, right? Yeah, Quebec is a province. And then Montreal is like the main city there. Vancouver I don't know. the big city in British Columbia. But the, the capital is Ottawa. Ottawa. Well, right? I've heard about it. Isn't it weird though, Caesar? Like, it's right there. It's one of yeah. the biggest countries in the world. It's our neighbor. And we don't even know the capital. And we're yeah. both have degrees. We both traveled internationally. So, right, that's a cultural thing. It's not an individual me and you thing. That's a cultural thing about Americans. Mm. And I think it really exemplifies, you know, what we're taught about ourselves and the mythologies that we're taught about ourselves and we're taught about the rest of the world. And so since then, man, I've been really on a mission to disrupt that for myself and to disrupt that for other black and brown people. Everybody, yeah, but I, you know, I'm specifically passionate about working with you know black and Latino students and helping them find ways to disrupt this idea that we are um, exceptional and more exceptional than others, because ultimately the others that we're exceptional to are our ancestors, are our people, yeah, right? are our racial groups, are where we came from, yeah. There- so it's this trick that they're playing mm-hmm. on us to really invalidate our own identities. I, I love this idea that you're talking about because, I mean, it's one of the realizations I had as well. Um, but I describe it as like, I realized that I was in a bubble, you know, I was like uh-huh. in a bubble where the only thing that mattered was the things around me, the culture around me. And it was true in El Paso. So I find it so interesting that you talk about when you went to Wisconsin, right? You went to Wisconsin, um, it, that it was your first study abroad because um, after high school, I went to on a one week trip to visit UT and I consider that my first study abroad because I like, I was like, oh my God, <laughs> there's, there's a different world out there. I need to go. And UT Austin was like my first study abroad. And every time I've gone to another country, it's like it bursts my bubble and it expands my bubble. And it's also really similar to, I mean, China, uh, at least the, the impression that I got is that Chinese people are similar to Americans to where only China matters. You know what I mean? Like, it's all about China. China is the best. And, and like, you're from America, who cares? Like we speak China, every, every other country kind of caters to English speaking people. 
Um, but China's like, no, we're like, you speak Chinese here. Um, yeah, Mandarin. Yeah. They, Mandarin. And Mandarin. That's right. That's what's dope to be there as a traveler though, you know, to get to, to, to experience another country that has a similar sense of like, uh, esteem about themselves and mythology about themselves, right? In a country that's so old, that predates our country by so many hundreds of years, you know, you know, one of the most interesting since you brought up China, you know, I, I told you I was leading a study abroad trip there in 2019. I took like 40 mm -hmm. students and I already remember this from when I was a TA, but it was nice to get this information again. Now, I can't remember this dude's name not only can I not remember it, I'm, if I try to pronounce it, I'll badger it. So I'll just say, go Google him or go Google this idea. But basically in like the 1400s, man, he was like the um, emperor and he decided, they had these fleets of boats that were like way bigger than the European boats mm -hmm. that colonized the world, like 10 times bigger, wow. like huge fleets that would go trail to like Southeast Asia and even Western Africa, no, Eastern Africa, right? They would, just, they would sail down in, you know, that whole region. And then what ultimately they decided that they didn't feel like these boats, they felt like there was gonna be some potential disruption of their culture if they kept these boats around. Like they felt like he, he was nervous about what this could do to the world what, you know, how it was going to influence Chinese culture by like, because they had the ability to move so much stuff from place to place and they burned the entire fleet. What? Wow. Yeah, crazy, right? <laughs> burned crazy. the entire fleet. I want to say his name is like Chunk Sook or something. I feel like there's a Sook in there, but um, burn the entire fleet. Now imagine how the world would be so different. Like at that point, Europe could not compete with China. Mm. No way, shape or form, military power, none of that. Right. Yeah. But after they burned their fleet and they kind of kept isolated way on that side of the world, it created the space for Europe to kind of start develop, you know, doing what they did and obviously colonizing the world. But it's like, how different could the world be right now? Who knows if if those boats would have kept moving around the world, you know. Wow. And they would have became a part of, you know, like. Who knows? Maybe their culture would have looked at it differently, and maybe they wouldn't want them to extract at, in the same way that European culture did. Um, so it's interesting to think like how the world could be so different if they made that decision not to burn their fleet of boats. Yeah, and it makes me think of how the world would be so different if more people traveled and under and and took a little bit of time. You know, there's a difference between traveling for vacation and kind of going to a place to live and uh, possibly do some work. Huge difference. Yeah, and I wanted to ask um, your experience with that because I'm sure you've done both. And Yeah, yeah. so, so I mean, I think most of the time I've done like travel, like vacation stuff is like for somebody's wedding, you go to a resort and that's nice. It's beautiful, three days, da, 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 da. But it's such a different experience because if you're going on vacation, if you work the entire year and you have two weeks of vacation and you're like, all right, now I'm going to go on my travel. This is how I want to travel the world. You want to relax, mm -hmm. right? You want to get there. You want to relax because you only have this two weeks. You want to sit in a lawn chair. You want to have drinks delivered to you. That's <laughs> the vibe you're looking for. And while that's beautiful and you can see beautiful beaches and maybe go to a couple of tourist destinations, you know, maybe even some historical sites, 
you're not going to really have this authentic cultural immersion experience the same way that you can when you study abroad, right? Or when you go learn abroad or you go volunteer abroad or you go work abroad or live abroad. Those are very different experiences. You're for forced to engage the culture when you know you're going to be somewhere longer than 10, 14 days, right? Yeah. You got to learn some of the language because you're not at a resort hotel where everyone speaks English. Mm. Right? And even if it's not like, I don't know any other languages to be completely transparent, but there's highs, buys, thank you, smiles. You know, there's certain little words that you do have to learn and customs that you learn so you can learn how to navigate spaces. Mm. Um, and, you know, so people oftentimes ask me like, oh, what's the best country you've ever, you know, you've been to, or you'd want to tell people to go to. And it's the countries I've been to the longest, right? Mm. Because I know them the best. That's so it'd be true. Korea and South Africa, South Africa, because I've been there multiple times um, and run, you know, I, I studied abroad there and as an undergrad, and then I've run multiple trips there, month long trips. So, you know, I've spent, you know, almost, a year of my life in South Africa, right? If you add them up. Mm -hmm. And in Korea, you know, I was over there teaching. So I was there for about a year and a half. Um, and it's not because I, I think those countries are necessarily better than any of the other 30 some countries I've been to, but I just know them better because I've been there longer. So the experience is more authentic, is more pure. Um, you know, mm -hmm. you're more on the ground with the people. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, having conversations, that's one of the best things I think about traveling abroad is like having these random authentic conversations. Nice. But if you're traveling as simply a tourist, you're only going to meet really people that work in the tourism industry. Right. Yeah. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that experience. Like do it. If you've never traveled, do it and go have a great experience at, you know, and meet the people you can meet. But if you have the opportunity, I would say, especially I know you're targeting like younger people study abroad there's no other there's there's nothing else that can compare when you can go for a month to four months to a year and afford it too mm -hmm. you know like when I wanted to go teach in Korea I was working in Los Angeles I had to quit my job I literally I, my goal was to backpack Southeast Asia for three months that was like my goal like my life after I made it to Africa my next life goal is like I want to backpack Southeast Asia and it didn't happen until maybe four years later. But in order to do that, I had to quit working at um, in L.A., you know, cut my rent, move back in with my parents for a month, then move to Korea for a year to a one year teaching contract. So then that I can have enough money to go back back Southeast Asia for three months. Right. Wow. Yeah. But it, it's like I had to disrupt my whole life to do something for three months mm -hmm. because I also wouldn't have been able to just go backpack for three months, I wouldn't have had enough money. You know, I had to go to Korea first and make the money. So it, um, it, the longer you can go, especially in your twenties, when you're young and you're open, you know, that's why I encourage first years to go, you know, like you're still so open. Mm -hmm. yeah, you, know? you got, and you got nothing to lose. Like, it's like the time to do it. You got no responsibilities. Yeah. You, you, you get some loans. Yeah. Right. And um, I'm still paying off my loans, but I'm happy to pay off these loans that totally changed and transformed my life. Totally. Like yeah. the expectations that the goals that I have for myself now, the reality that I live in now, like teaching, you know, I'm going to be teaching a course at the University of Texas for hundreds of students next semester. Like, what? <laughs> goals like that? You know, I didn't think that was possible for somebody like me. Mm hmm. 
Um, I wanted to ask, how did you deal with the self doubt? Because that's a very um, uncommon thing to do, right? To want to go and uh, you you said you went to Korea, right? You moved in with your parents. It's kind of to leave everything that is secure for something that society views as risky, which I think in the long run isn't that risky. But everybody else around you is telling you, "What are you doing?" You know, yeah. how do you how did you deal with that? So it's interesting. So people weren't that worried when I wanted to go to Canada. Then I wanted to go to South Africa. I got denied acceptance. So I went to England and said, people weren't that worried. Oh, cool. You're up to that. Then when I finally, my senior year, I'm like, finally, I'm going to South Africa. My dad was terrified. My dad is black, terrified. Other black men that I knew, like my friend's parents, terrified. It was weird. And it goes back to what we were saying before about like this wool that's been pulled over our heads around like when we dehumanize other places around the globe, what we're really doing is dehumanizing, right? And when America dehumanizes places, they're dehumanizing me as a black person and my legacy and ancestry to that place. So it was like all these other black men that I met, they were terrified of Africa. And it was the weirdest thing to me. I'm like, you're a black man. Why are you afraid of me going to Africa? But they had, they had been influenced by this discourse and this rhetoric of white America about the dark continent disease, violence, um, warfare, yeah. you know, like all these tropes that are s- associated with the continent of Africa. So there was a lot of pressure there not to go, but I went, of course, and that gave me a lot of confidence. I wasn't scared. I, I enjoyed it. Um, and then when I decided to go to Korea, yeah, that was a big challenge because I was already working professionally for three years. I was doing well in my organization. They were interested in me moving to New Orleans, which was the city that I love still to this day. I absolutely love that city because it's the most like international city I think that we have here. I mean, obviously New York and stuff like that, but it just feels like you're in another country when you're in New Orleans. I've never Um, been. Oh, you got to go, man. You got to go. You'll love it. Um, So I had an opportunity, you know, like to move up the ladder and be like a program director in New Orleans, which I was like really thinking about. But again, man, I had wanted to go to Southeast Asia. And I had to go to Korea to do that in my understanding. Like I had, th- th- that was the way it could happen. So I finally convinced everybody that I'm going, my dad doesn't want me to go. He wants me to go to New Orleans. And I literally, the day that I quit my job, this is 10 days before I'm supposed to go. My dad dies. Like the day, the last day of wow. my job working at the Posse Foundation, cause I went back and worked for them. Uh, I'm like all excited, you know, my last day, go to the beach. And then something just feels off from at the beach, start driving home. And on the way home, I figure out, you know, notify that my father's passed away. And it was, you know, super sad. And it definitely made me want to not go. He didn't want me to go. Um, and what do you do? You know what I'm saying? Like you move to the other side of the world when your, your father just died. So I almost didn't, but I'm like, nah, like I'm going like, I pushed it back about a week because obviously my father died. So there's things that, you know, I had to take care of mm-hmm. and stuff and helping get things in order. But, you know, I, I went and it was tough. And I remember on that plane kind of like by myself, 15 hour plane ride, just like, man, what am I doing? Like, why mm-hmm. am I here? I don't know nobody. I don't know. I literally right when, as the plane was learning, landing, I learned how to say like, hello, you know, I, 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 cause I just wasn't in the mental space that I thought I was going to be in cause my pops had passed. So it was tough. I remember moving through the, through the airport in um, Seoul before I got to my actual city that I was living in and it was tough, but um, 
What was it in your mentality? I knew that if I stuck with my goals that I personally had set, that I would, my energy would pick back up and I would fall in line with it. And it would have been so easy to give up on that goal because my father had died. And Mm -hmm. it was just so much easier to stay in LA at that point. But I'm like, nah, like I've been privileged to have the opportunity to pursue my goals, right? Mm -hmm. Not everybody really has an opportunity to do that. And I do. So, and my father's the one who gave me those opportunities, right? My father's the one who took me camping and skiing when I was a little kid to show me something that was different outside of urban Los Angeles. You know, my father had traveled to Europe, you know, when he was in his 20s. I had my father came and visited me when I was in England and we went to Amsterdam together and had a good time together. <laughs> you know, so like he was a big inspiration for my traveling. So I'm like, nah, I got to stick with it. And just, you know, sometimes, you know, it's almost like what's most beautiful, like the beautiful thing is, is comes after a hardship. And that career experience was beautiful for me. It turned out to be beautiful. Um, it was, I had never had so much fun in my life. That was the funnest year I've ever had. Damn. I, I mean, I, I agree with this, that sometimes like the best parts of your life or like the funnest parts come after something that is really hard. And with that idea, I wanted to ask, do you have any other, like, do you have any favorite failures that led to like something that was amazing? You know, because I know as, as a college kid. It actually relates to study abroad. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, college students, you're going to have failures all the time, but I mean, I already started off with some, right. Mm -hmm. The failures that I had in high school, um, yeah. And how that, you know, I responded to that by getting straight A's the next semester. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was like, oh, um, but also I kind of briefly mentioned it, but, you know, my junior year, I applied to go to South Africa in the spring semester. Mm-hmm. I only had one semester of housing. I stayed in the international dorm in the fall semester because I was convinced I was going to South Africa in the spring and I didn't get accepted. And I was furious. I'm like, at this white ass school, how are you not going to accept me, one of the few black people here to go to Africa, these white kids to go to Africa over me? I was furious. And I, and I, cause I met all the requirements, you know, I had above a 3.0, whatever, whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm like literally going up, knocking on their door every day. Like, I don't understand. Right. And they're like, look, man, you know, it's an exchange. So it depends. The number's different every year. If they give us eight students, we send them eight students. You know, if they give us 15, we send them 15. So it was a smaller group this year. You didn't make it. And I just was not accepting that. I just wouldn't accept it. So they were like, look, man, you can go to England because that's a program that we have more control over. It's all Wisconsin students who go out there. They go together. They take class together. They live together. You know, we haven't met our capacity for that. You know, if you want to be on that trip, we can give you an acceptance to that trip. And I was like, I don't want to go to Europe. You know, like, yeah, I know whiteness. (laughs) like I grew up in a you know a colony of Britain right like why do I want to go there and I was furious the first week I mean I but I still went because I literally I was like I'm going somewhere and the first week I went you know I just remember being like anti-social there's a picture of me with like headphones behind the group and to me that really signifies like where I was at I was like man I'm here with all these white kids from Wisconsin Yada, 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 yada. He didn't want to be there. But you know what? That turned out to be the best thing for me because one, I learned so much about Wisconsin on that trip. 
You know, sometimes you go abroad and you think you're going to learn about the place where you're going to, but what you actually learn is about the place in which you came from. Right. Damn. And that was really eye opening for me. And I met all these other kids from Wisconsin that were, you know, I didn't have white friends in Wisconsin at that point. Mm-hmm. I had like one white friend. I think I like some, used to smoke weed with, at, you know, like that was my <laughs> friend. And then he turned out to say something that was like kind of racist and we'd stop being friends. Um, so when I came back from that international trip, you know, now I had access to all these new spaces in and around campus. I had friends that were from Wisconsin. I went on a road trip through Wisconsin. You know, I just was exposed to all these new spaces and new people and it was beautiful. But then the most important thing about that trip was I met this kid named Nick and Nick was from Oklahoma, white dude. And I remember me and him were getting along well. And then he said one time, he's like, hey, if anybody wants to go with me, I'm only gonna take one other person. I'm gonna go to uh, Greece and Turkey. Um, I'm gonna go to Greece and Turkey for spring break, but only one other person. And I could wow. tell this dude had like wisdom and he knew what he was talking about. I'm like, I'll go. <laughs> he's like, all right, cool. So we started planning the trip. He's like, all right, we're gonna fly into Athens. We bought a one way. I'm like, all right, one way, that's interesting. You know. How are we going to get back? <laughs> All right, we're going we're gonna to buy a one-way out of Istanbul. Okay. So we're going to fly into Athens. We're going to fly out of Istanbul. Cool. Just trusting. I'm like, cool, cool, cool. Well, you know, I kind of like waited a day. And then like the next day, I'm like, all right, so uh, Nick, you know, how are we going to get from here to here? So I don't know, man. We're going to figure that out when we get there. We'll kind of take it day by day. All right, well, how many days are we going to be in Athens? He's like, I don't know, at least two nights. So the first two nights will at least be there. And we'll spend at least you know, two nights in Istanbul and the rest of the time we'll kind of figure it out. I'm like, what the fuck is this dude talking about? Right? Like, (laughs) what does he mean? And I just took the leap of faith. I trusted him. And that's where I learned how to backpack, man. Like that's when I became a backpacker on that trip. Oh, wow. And learned how to navigate hostels, learn how to navigate, you know, transportation systems, you know, just learn how to plan out without knowing much and just trusting the process and going with the flow and meeting people. And it was beautiful, man. And it was a great trip. And um, that was so influential because that taught me how, again, to backpack. So then when I finally made it to South Africa my senior year, I took a two week trip by myself to Egypt by myself. And that was the first like solo trip I did, but it was because of my experience in England, the ability to travel, you know, to to Istanbul, I mean, that Istanbul trip, but then also to like to Amsterdam, to Spain on other weekend trips. I was so much more confident in my ability to travel and ultimately my ability to backpack and by myself. So I went to Egypt by myself and um, yeah, that was for two weeks. But I also did this other trip around Southern Africa with this other dude. We went to, uh, you know, Zimbabwe, Zambia, uh, Namibia and then back to South Africa we did this like huge circle around Botswana and all those experiences you know I wouldn't have had the confidence to do or the you know if I would have never went to England so what wow. started off as like a huge failure turned out to be the best thing for me and you know now when I by the time I went to South Africa I was a senior I was more confident I knew how I think the most important thing was I knew also how easy it was to hang out with other international students. Mm -hmm. So I was so intentional my first week. I probably came off a little standoffish, but I wasn't engaging the other international students during orientation and all that stuff. Cause I'm like, 
we're going to have so much in common, especially being in another country, you know, our identities as Americans outweighs our identity as black people. Right. In Mm -hmm. many ways, I identify more with other white Americans than I do with black Africans. Right. Because race in a global context, you know, nationality oftentimes is more indicative of your resources, your opportunities, your experiences, your worldview, all that stuff. So I was like, let me not hang out with these international students because my goal was to really engage and get to know people on the ground. So the first week I was a little standoffish, met a couple of people, but didn't really want to, you know, start meeting people. And I would just talk to the, you know, the, the other black and color people in, in class. Um, you know, the Africans and the color folks and try to meet people, da, 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 da. And once I met a group of those people, then I started becoming more open to the international students. So I, so I had a solid foundation in both groups, right? Because most other international students hung out with international students because it's so easy to do so. But again, because I had traveled in England and this was my third experience so far, I knew how to navigate it a little bit better to get what I wanted out of the experience. You know, that's uh, crazy you say that because by the time I went to Thailand, that was my third experience and it was six months in Thailand. And when I arrived, I was like in South Africa is when I learned how to be a backpacker. There is like a, there's like a little, something happens when you travel. Somebody, you're going to meet somebody, you're going to have some experience where if you let yourself go, you will get into a great adventure that, that, that makes you realize, oh, if I just kind of relax and go with the flow, things are okay. Oh, figure it out. Yeah. So by the time I get to Thailand, like, I don't know why, but instinctively I knew I like, I'm not going to live with all the, all the people who, who are studying abroad. Cause I already know, like, I'm going to talk to them. I'm going to live in a Thai neighborhood and then uh, I'm going to talk to all the Thai people. Cause that's the, that's mm-hmm. how I'm going to meet more people. So it's, it's interesting that you did that as well. Yeah. But it takes a while to get there. Right. On your mm-hmm. first international trip, you know, not going to necessarily go, you know, really be engaging on the locals. You're going to engage whoever engages you, the people you identify with and yeah. people you have access to. Which I think it's also important why you should go several times because it's like anything, the more you do it, the better you get at it. And then, you yeah. Can, yeah. yeah. And then gonna- the more you realize the other opportunities there are out there to travel, right? So many people think like traveling is so expensive and it's like, it is on your first time because you don't know what you're doing, how to navigate these spaces. Mm-hmm. And you don't know where the other opportunities are, but like, there's so much you can do, you know, whether that be teaching English, you know, my little brother did the Peace Corps, he taught English. He also lived in Australia. Um, you know, if you're under 30, you can get a one year work visa in Australia e- easily. And you know, the minimum wage out there is like $25. It's expensive out there. But so I know a lot of people who've gone out there whether it be wow. like work on a farm and pick apples and make a few hundred dollars a day. I didn't, know that. I didn't know that. That's crazy. Yeah. So it's like, there's ways to continue to travel and explore the world for cheap. So even my brother, so like, I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. Like mm-hmm. he, most of his twenties, he spent internationally largely because I did. Right. Mm-hmm. Once I started going abroad, he was like, I got to study abroad too. He studied abroad in Mexico in Querétaro for a year. And, um, after that, you know, he fell in love. So then he did the teaching in Korea. He was out there part of the time with I when I was. He did Peace Corps. He did Australia. And then after Australia, he decided to backpack the world. So he did, I think, Southeast Asia, around Asia for three months. Austra- then he went to South America for six months, went to like uh, the World Cup in Brazil. And then he went and he stayed at this like animal sanctuary, I think in like Uruguay. 
this dude paid like $500 for a month, housing and food included. So that's pretty good. You know, you get your food and housing for $500. Um, he literally woke up at 5.30 in the morning, helped clean up for 30 minutes, walked through the jungle for 30 minutes as the sun is rising to a cage in the middle of the jungle by himself, gets a leash and gets this mountain lion, or out there they call him a puma, called Carlos, walks Carlos through the jungle for six hours a day with obviously like various stops off so Carlos could sleep because it's a big cat. Six hours, and then he'd walk back for 30, walk him back to the cage and then walk back to the site for 30 minutes by himself, eat dinner, wake up the next day and do it over again. Wow. For a month. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? So but you know what I'm saying? He was out there for a month having a crazy spiritual experience with a damn Puma for $500. Yeah. I think this is a very important point to highlight for young people who are listening that it is very affordable, more affordable than you think to travel abroad. You can have a minimum wage job and like for even a year, I think that's more than what you need. If you pick your country correctly, you can have incredible experiences that you think or you thought were only reserved for people with a lot of money. Um, yeah, and, I, and, and so much of travel because of this, you know, white supremacist world we live in, we associate travel to Europe. Oh, I want to go to Spain. Yeah. I want to go to France or I want to go to England. Like that's where people want to go. And it's like mm -hmm. our dollar doesn't work well in those countries, right? The mm -hmm. European, um, the Euro is more valuable than our dollar. So when you go there, if you buy a coffee for $2 here and now you want to buy a coffee for $2 over there and now you just spent three American dollars. Yeah. Right. Why don't we want to explore the brown and black peoples of this globe? It's cheaper to travel there. You're going to have a more authentic transformational experience. And you all, I feel like I learn more when I travel to those places because I'm always learning how do people navigate this world and make positive lives and create structures and buildings and learning environments and, and systems with far less resources than what we have, mm -hmm. right? And from that, I learn what can I be doing differently in my own house? Like I started eating so much cleaner mm -hmm. when I came back from traveling, like just the way people live off a few different fruits and vegetables. And I'm like, oh man, I could, I could eat like this too back in the States. Right. The simplicity of like having one or two pairs of shoes, one or two pairs of jeans and a couple of shirts. Like, why do I need all these clothes for who, for what? Right. And a lot of those experiences, like just simplicity and like lack, not needing so many material things is is a huge thing I picked up from travel. And that's what helped me help me navigate graduate school, to be honest. Right. Like I got paid a thousand dollars a month as a graduate student here. $960. I had to live off $960 a month in the States. My rent was almost $500. So I'm, now I'm living off $100 a week, food, transportation, you know, let alone if anything comes up, I get hurt. You know, I want to anything, right? I had no money, but I had learned because of so many of my travels to live a very simple life. Very simple. I didn't need much. Mm -hmm. um, and I was so not concerned about what other people thought of me. You know? mm. And that saves you so much money when yeah. you don't care what this person thinks of you. Because I had a strong sense grounding of who I was because I had experienced myself in so many different parts of the world, so many different people. I, I, I felt like I know who I am. I'm confident in who I am and 
and I'm grounded. And, and that allows you to navigate a lot of spaces and things differently. Even right now, right? Like I'm a professor here. If you go look at my car, you'd be like, this is a horrible car. <laughs> it is, it's terrible. Right? Like I, when I, when I, <laughs> if I'm going to get out of my car, I got to roll down my window, stick my arm outside the door and open it. Mm-hmm. If somebody wants to get in the other side, I have to open it for them because there's no puller on the outside. Now I don't use the car that much, but I still haven't bought a new car. Do I have enough money to buy a new car right now? I could go buy a new car in cash tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Why I have a car that works. Yeah. And, and, and that's what I learned from being abroad, right? Why do we always need the newest, best, flashiest mm-hmm. things? For who? For our neighbor? For somebody else? For what? I have a car that works. Why not use it? Yeah. In uh, in Thailand, I I didn't bring anything because, I, like I said, I was already well-traveled and I didn't bring a blanket or a pillow. So for the first few months, I slept without a blanket or a pillow because it was also I didn't need it at night because it was so hot. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. I remember writing in my journal, I think one day I will write a book titled sleeping without a pillow <laughs> because Thailand was when I realized, dude, you don't really need a lot of stuff to live. And, oh. and it's not that you want to live this way, right? It's not that we're saying that you want to live like with a hundred dollars a week, but it's just that it's like a superpower because you're not afraid anymore to, to get there. But mm-hmm. um, you're not. And it's like, I mean, I used to, when I was here, man, I would like, literally I would show up when I was a graduate student, I would make a fruit shake in the morning. I would show up to campus with like two carrots and a cucumber. Mm-hmm. And just that and that might be my snack. That's lunch is 40 cents. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? But we don't always think about it like that. We think, oh, what's somebody gonna think of me? Give me some tahini, throw it on there, then the cucumber is really cracking. You know what I'm saying? It's like <laughs> people don't necessarily we're not taught to think about simplicity in that way in this country. That's not part of our culture. It's extravagance, right? It's mm-hmm. showy, it's this and it's that. And it like that can weigh on you, you know? Yeah. That can weigh on you and it, it forces you to buy things and do things and you kind of waste your money in, in ways that, you know, aren't important, which yeah. limits what you can do, right? It limits your freedom because then you become... I don't want to use this word, but I'm about to kind of a slave to the money, a slave to your job, because you have so many expenses. You got to keep this instead of doing what you're passionate about, doing what you love, because you don't know how to live a more simple life. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Walker, we're coming up on an hour and I feel like we can talk for hours, but to be respectful about your time, I just wanted to, if we have time, ask you some quick questions, some rapid fire mm-hmm. questions. Rapid fire. Yeah. There's a, uh, so I did reach out to a lot of people who knew you and uh, I wanted to ask them some questions, but there's, there was so many, I just, I'll ask one that I think that I'm interested in. Um, what do you think? Uh, this comes from an entrepreneur uh, that you study abroad with in South Africa. What do you think are the main resources students should consider for st- when when looking to study abroad? Whether they're resources for preparing to study abroad or resources for picking a program, um, whether they're in college or or not in college. What do you think? Where do you think pe- people? Yeah, should I, I I would think about it like concentric circles, starting with yourself, right? Like really trying to understand who you are and why you want to go abroad and where you want to go and how that speaks to your trajectory, right? You are the resource, right? Mm -hmm. And once you have a solid understanding of how this experience is going to help propel you towards the trajectory that you think you want to be on, right? And you're able to articulate that, then you start, then you 
take a little step out. Like now you start using that knowledge, that understanding of self to apply for scholarships, right? To tap into the various resources on campus, whether that be your, you know, your college that you're in, whether it be the study abroad office, the division of first, wherever it is, right? Like articulating and even off campus, there's so many scholarships that go unused, right? Mm -hmm. What happens is that so many people, they, they feel like they have to work to make the money to go abroad, right? I'm a, you know, I grew up working class. I worked through college, of course. And that's the mindset I had. All right. If I work 10 hours, you know, if I get $10 an hour and I work a hundred hours, that's a thousand dollars, right? All right. That's how I'm gonna get my thousand dollars. If you have a better understanding of who you are and how this international experience is going to impact your life, you can take 50 of those hours and work and make your $500. And those other 50 hours work on telling your story to various applications, to various people, to apply for grants, right? You spend 50 hours on that kind of stuff, right? And again, these concentric circles, creating a GoFundMe and tapping into your, you know, the communities that you're a part of, your community back home, if you, you know, your religious community, your work community, whatever, and telling people, hey, this is why I wanna go, this is what I wanna experience. Um, thinking of creative little campaigns. Hey, if you donate $10, you'll get like a bracelet from South Africa. If you donate $50, you'll get a bracelet and you'll get a painting. You know, if you donate $100, you get a bracelet, a painting and a, you know, a home cooked South African meal from me when I come back and stories for days, right? If you're creative, right? And you really, and, but it all comes with like understanding why you want to go and believing in it and committing yourself to like, I'm going. And once you commit yourself to I'm going, the resources, you start to better understand how to access the resources, how to, how to create the resources. Um, and I think with that, those 50 hours of doing that kind of stuff, you'll make more than $500. Gotcha. Far more gotcha. than $500. Gotcha. I was going to ask, are there any books that you often recommend to college students? A book? Or yeah. Um, Man, you know, a book that I really liked that I haven't really thought about in a while, it just popped into my head right now, so I'm gonna share. Ah, what was it like? What is that saying? Like you don't throw stones at like a glass. The glass building or glass house? It was something, <laughs> of, yeah. It was something like that. It was about Zimbabwe and it was about the revolution that happened in Zimbabwe and this black woman, you know, kind of housekeeper working for a white family and her experience through this revolution as you know, like that Zimbabweans started taking over farms and killing some white people and running white Zimbabweans out of the country. Uh, and it was about that. And it was so fascinating and interesting because what I do whenever I travel to a country, I like to read a historical nonfiction, I mean, historical fiction about the place. So I'm, I'm traveling, but I'm reading, I'm learning. So I'm trying to put in context what I'm experiencing with some of this like historical fiction, because I like historical fiction because it's historical, it's based on reality, but it's fiction, the story is fictitious. So they can, the author can weave in so much history and so much culture to inform you kind of about the place. So that's my favorite type of book. And whenever I'm in a new country, I'm all, I always try to find a book that will help me navigate the place. So that's what I was reading when I was in Zimbabwe and I, I really loved it. Um, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. If, uh, for the last question, if you could uh, give one piece of advice to all high school seniors, um, what would you tell them? 
have 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 confidence in yourself. You know, I just think so many of the things that I've struggled with throughout my life, especially in high school, the beginning of my freshman year, whatever, were due to a lack of confidence. And I don't mean like building up your ego and inflating an ego. And if that's what it takes, this ego to build real authentic confidence over here, then maybe do that. But confidence, man, is the key because confidence allows you to believe in yourself and pursue your goals, right? If you don't have no confidence with every goal that you set, you're going to find a reason not to do it. But every time you accomplish a goal, you get more confident in yourself and you set the bigger goals, right? Mm. Like when I climbed Lion's Head in South Africa as a college student, and when I made it up and I got to the top and I'm looking over the Atlantic Ocean and Table Mountain and the City Bowl, and I'm like, oh my God, I made it to Africa. I'm here, I did it. Like I did this shit. 12 year old Devin wanted to do this. I'm here, right? I, I felt this, rush of confidence this rush of like you you made it like you did this right it was the first huge goal that i'd ever accomplished i don't consider going and getting accepted into college a huge goal because it was almost like an expectation mm-hmm. that society has for everybody right going to africa is not an expectation that people have of anybody that was like devin and on that mountain i set a new goal you're gonna help other black and brown kids travel the world i want to bring other black and brown kids to this mountain Seven years later, I'm leading this trip for the University of Texas. I'm hiking 40 black and brown students up this mountain. Wow. And it felt so good to accomplish that goal. When I saw, I I, I got, I hiked up and I passed them all. I I got on the mountain first. I mean, to the top of the mountain first, because I kind of wanted to see each one walk up and I could tell, man, each one of them peaked the mountain. I could see their face. They were having the same experience I did, right? It wasn't just about climbing this mountain. And mind you, most Texans don't climb mountains because there's not a lot of mountains here. (laughs) But not only is that a challenge, right? Mm -hmm. But it's like, it's more like a metaphor, like, man, this mountain was challenging and, and, and hard. Just like my journey in this world has been just like my people, my ancestors journey has been who got stolen from these lands fucking 400, 500 years ago. And now I'm the first one in my lineage to make it back here. Like I did that. And I've never felt more confident in myself in that moment. You know, every time you reach a goal, you feel so confident and you set bigger goals. And again, that's what's gave me the confidence to apply for a PhD to get, you know, and then you just keep, and then now like the goals that I have for myself are so much bigger, right? And like, who knows, maybe one day I could be a, you know, a president of a university or, 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 you know, these huge goals that I'm like, man, I never would have thought I could get there. So to a young person in high school, trust who you're going to be in 10 years. Trust who you're going to be in 15 years. You're not going to have the same confidence you do at 17, 18. You're going to be more confident. So prepare for that person. Don't short that person. Hmm. Don't short your future self by not grinding now. And then by the time you're 25, 26, and you have a new level of confidence, but you didn't, you don't have the resources, the platform now, you don't have no college degree. You didn't, you didn't prepare to be this person. You prepared to have the same confidence of a 17 year old, right? So man, if that makes sense, that's ultimately what I would say. Like believe in who you are, believe in your own ability to become. 
I think it makes a lot of sense. Dr. Walker, thank you so much for coming on the show. If people want to reach you, they can find you at uh, the University of yes. Texas at Austin, Devin Walker. And socials, do you have your socials? Yes. So you can follow my uh, Instagram at DDC Global. My personal Instagram is at World Walker Foundation. Um, and you can follow those same things on Twitter and Instagram. And if you want to email me, Devin Walker at austin.utexas.edu. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Walker. Thank you, Caesar. Those are Caesar in the building. Hey there. If you enjoyed this episode, well, green light. New episodes of The Dose of Caesar come out every week, so make sure to follow and subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. If you feel that more people should listen to this podcast and share this episode with your tribe. If you want to connect with me, or if you just want some extra doses of Cesar, of Caesar, of Cesarin Bingui, then you can sign up for my free weekly email newsletter called The Caesar Encyclopedia, where I share what I learn every week. Or you can reach out to me on Instagram at the dose of Caesar. We'll see you next time.